Hi, I'm composer Ryan Shore, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Bob Reynolds, three-time Grammy award-winning superstar saxophonist known for his work with Snarky Puppy, the extraordinary band, and for touring and recording with John Mayer. He's released 11 solo albums, and he's played with stars like Chris Bodie, Michael Buble, Josh Groban, and Adina Menzel, among many others. And he's also a trailblazer in online music education. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Bob and I are going to do what I call a song fest. I've asked him to send me a handful of his best works. We'll play a little bit of them and we'll talk about them. You'll get the backstories and nobody else does this in podcasts. And you also know that in every episode, I like to feature a song of mine underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make that song relevant to my guests somehow. And in this instance, I have chosen my reimagined version of the song by the Kinks called You Really Got Me. It's from the album The Queen's Carnival by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, our guest singer on that track was the incredible Lucy Woodward, who has been a singer with Snarky Puppy. So I thought that it worked. So Bob Reynolds, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Thank you, Robert. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Okay. I mean, I got to ask you about getting into Snarky Puppy, because again, they're one of my favorite bands of all time. You guys are just rocking and hitting it everywhere. Tell me about how that all came together. So Snarky Puppy actually began in 2004, I believe. And so, wow, coming up on 20 years, um, your classic 20-year overnight success. And um, I actually joined them 10 years ago in 2013. And so a lot of people who know the band at some level kind of have heard that they got started in, in Texas, specifically Denton, Texas, around the University of North Texas jazz program, which is true, but I'm not part of that. I went to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. And so I, I ran into them later. And it's actually, um, the story is kind of interesting about how we got together. I was I was at the NAM show back in January of 2013, which is the, it's a big, what do you call it? Music like manufacturers kind of show. Yeah. yeah. National Association of Music Merchandisers. So it's this big thing happens every January in Anaheim, California. And I was there working with some musical brand at the time and was down there for the day. I had only recently been hipped to snarky by one of my best friends from growing up. And so I had been checking out their albums and their specifically their videos on YouTube at the time, which were very ahead of the time, uh, what they were doing. They were recording these live albums in front of a studio audience with headphones on and putting it all on YouTube. So I, I knew them to that degree and was a, was a fan. 
So I went out to see them play. They were playing a noon concert outdoors at NAM. It was raining. I always remember that because that's kind of rare for Southern California. And I was standing there in a hood listening to them play. And I tweeted something. I'm not, I never have been a big Twitter user, but I tweeted something about them, how great they were. And I walked back inside thinking nothing of it. And a little while later, I had a notification from a guy named Chris Bullock. Chris Bullock is the original saxophonist in Snarky Puppy, like from the beginning. So he was the one there playing and he responded like, hey, that's so cool that you're here. I'm a fan of yours. And he knew my albums and my work up to that point. It's like, maybe we can meet up and have coffee or something. So we met up and I was just geeking out like total fanboy. And I met, maybe casually met a couple of the other horn players in the band. And Chris said, you know, we're going to be back in LA in the spring. You should come sit in. And we kept in touch and they, they came back, you know, later that year in LA and I went to sit in with them. So this would have been around April of 2013. And I sat in with them at a very packed show at a club in Los Angeles called the mint, uh, which they were bursting the, the seams of that club at that time. And I, that's where I met the band, really met the band for the first time came in. I sat in on just one song and it was great. We had a lot of fun, felt like really good chemistry. And I had a nice talk with, with Michael league, the band leader. And I really was not only a fan of the music, but it was super, super duper fan of what they had done up to that point and specifically how they had done it. And we can get into this later or not, but coming from the background I had been involved when I just, I really respected the way they all worked together as a unit to get where they were going. Um, and there's some crazy stories about their journey up to that point, but long story medium, a couple months later, I got a call from Mike, the band leader, and he said, Hey, we're doing this recording later this year in Europe, and we'd like you to be a part of it. And he told me the dates right up front. He said, it's going to be October, such and such. And the reason I mentioned that is because he told me the dates and then he proceeded to tell me all about what the vision for the record was. Um, oh, we're going to, we're going to be this big studio outside of Amsterdam. You know, the, the thing we do with the live audience and, and Chris really wants to play bass clarinet and flute and other things. We really want to make sure there's always saxophone on the track too. And, and you're the first choice. And it just sounded incredible. I was totally down except for one problem. I knew that uh, during that exact week or weekend he was talking about, I had already scheduled a trip with my wife and my very young daughter. We had a three-year-old daughter to go and visit my grandmother in Vermont. And this was going to be when my we introduced my daughter to my grandmother. So Ooh. like a very important trip. Yeah. And I was, I, so I'm listening to Mike, you know, explain his vision all the while just waiting for him to pause. So I could tell him that sadly I was going to have to pass because I thought, you know, I got to do the right thing here. Family, family first. Um, and so that's what I said. I, he told me everything and I explained the situation and I was like, I can't believe I have to do this, man. That one weekend. It's this the one weekend that's happening. I already have this trip and you know, my grandmother at that point was already in her maybe early nineties or, or somewhere around there. So I was like, I have to, I have to do this. And so I said, no. And I walked into the house and I told my wife had just happened. I said, you're never going to believe the conversation I just had. And I explained all of that to her. Fortunately, I married an amazing person. I picked the right person a long time ago. And she said, you're crazy. Why didn't you just tell him to hold on? And why didn't you check with me? Like, let's just move the trip. 
Hold on a second. You, you mean your wife said let's ditch grandma? Is that what she said? Yeah. Well, she said just let's move it. Just move it. What's the big deal? We we'll move it back a weekend or something, you know? And it's like it didn't even dawn on me. I was so fixated on that. I thought I was doing the right thing here. Um, and so, and also logistically, it was going to be a bit of a thing. But I texted Mike. I said, hey, listen, I might be able to to work something out. Can you give me 24 hours? And Mike texted back, you're crazy. I love it. Absolutely. And 24 hours later, I, you know, on our own dime had paid to reschedule the whole trip. And I had a ticket to Amsterdam to go record with them in, in October. And that recording is what ended up being the album. We like it here, which is perhaps still the biggest album. And the one with yeah. some pretty iconic video solos of various instrumentalists in the band, like Corey Henry and, um, and such. So that was, that was the beginning of my journey with Snarky Puppy, and it's been ten is ten years ago this month. That worked out for you. You know, you remind me. I just had Ron Carter on the podcast. I just interviewed him, and he was telling me the story about how Miles Davis comes to see him play in a club in New York. He's playing with Art Farmer, okay, in in a quartet, and Miles is coming to ask him if he'll join Miles' new quintet with Herbie mm -hmm. Hancock and all the other guys. Yeah. And Ron has to say to him, well, wait a minute, Miles, I'm committed to Art Farmer. I can't do this unless you work it out with Art Farmer. Mm. And Miles couldn't believe at the moment that he actually said that, but that's what happened. He worked it out. So the rest, as they say, is history. So, it, and it worked out for you. Yeah, it did. Very much so. Very much so. Well, those are always nice stories. And Look, the way that Snarky Puppy has grown and developed is quite a remarkable story. We're going to listen to some of that music that you've made with that band when we get to the Songfest. But I want to ask about a couple of other people that you've played with. Tell me about John Mayer. John and I both went to Berkeley College of Music at the same time. So the same age and we're the same class. Uh, although I, I stayed there for four years and he was only there the first year and then he left to move to Atlanta and 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 start pursuing what he knew he really wanted to do. So we met in the freshman year. It was kind of an interesting story also. And it was 10 years later after that, that I joined his band. What happened was basically a friend at Berkeley, a mutual friend of ours was doing a late night recording session and asked me to play on it. And when I say late night, if I remember correctly, the session was going to begin somewhere around 2.30 or 3 in the morning. That's late night. Yeah, and that's because at Berkeley, <laughs> at least at that time at Berkeley, the recording studios were in use uh, as classrooms all day for the people there studying engineering. And so if you wanted to get any recording time, it was going to have to be in the wee hours of the morning. And... I was reluctant. I almost, <laughs> there's a theme developing here. I nearly said no, just because it was it was so late and I didn't even know all the people involved with it besides the guy who asked me. But I mean, I was a freshman in college. I thought, well, if I do this, you know, maybe I'll meet the recording engineer and I know I'm going to need some studio time to record my like final projects this year. And it's, you know, so maybe this will work out and okay, I'll do it. So I, I did, I set the alarm. I went down three o'clock in the morning and go to this session. And so that my pal Clay Cook, who was the one who invited me, who, by the way, has had a pretty phenomenal career too. He plays in the Zach Brown band and has done a lot of different things. But so Clay is there, a couple other guys I knew, and the other guitar player was John Mayer. And they had this instrumental kind of funk tune thing to play. And at that time, I remember very specifically, John, I didn't know him at, at all. He sounded like, you know, like a, 
somebody sort of trying to sound like Charlie Hunter, the great guitarist, okay. plays guitar and bass simultaneously on one instrument. So you kind of had that vibe. Anyway, we did the track. It was like a funky thing, whatever. And and honestly, that was that. Uh, it wasn't until years later, around the time I was graduating from Berkeley, John's first album was about to come out on Columbia. And I heard that I heard an early version of the album, and I I just instantly loved the music. And B, I said to a friend of mine that we were listening, I was like, "This guy is it going to be huge? This is I've never heard anything like this." It's got it's got so many elements in it, and I'm talking about the album that became uh, Room for Squares. I just I just thought it was so cool and so different and so accessible and yet so deep, like musically, harmonically, so sophisticated and and accessible all at the same time. I was like, this is going to be really big, and uh, you know, that, then that album came out. I moved to New York and. We kind of, I forget all the touch points, but we sort of kept in touch here and there a little bit over the years. One time I, I went to a concert of his when I was home visiting family in Florida and hung out with him a little bit there. And then around 2006, I had just returned back to New York after I had gotten married and we had just returned back from our honeymoon. I was in New York and, um, and I got an email from John. I can't remember what got it going, but he was like, Hey, are you around tomorrow night I'm playing at uh, Webster Hall in New York. And also like, what are you doing next year? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I was like, whoa, all right. And this is, he had just at that point released an album called Continuum, which is maybe his kind of certainly at the top of his canon of work, one of the most incredible uh, albums. And that had just come out and my wife was a fan of his. And so I, I surprised her. I went to meet her downtown and I took her to the concert without telling her. And I figured, well, if this is really going to happen, I'm going to let him ask her, you know, if I'm available next year. And so that's what I did. We went, we saw the concert, we went backstage afterwards and I introduced them and, and John asked her, he's like, Hey, you know, you mind if I borrow your husband next year? And so that was the beginning. That was 2007. And I spent the next couple of years on the road, uh, touring that album. And then the follow-up album, um, with John. What this says to me is that Berkeley College of Music, which for anybody that doesn't know, is the place in Boston and basically the greatest music school in the United States. I mean, look at the connections and the contacts that you've made there that so many people make. I mean, it's just a melting pot for so many great musicians. So good for you. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Fantastic. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. I've just released a new EP called The Singles Project that features five of my new songs. I'm pleased to say that the recording has gotten wonderful reviews. It's been called amazing, magical, fabulously enticing, a home run, and a sonic toward the force. How about that? The songs speak to the ups and downs of life, from the blissful, joyous, Saturday morning to the darker commentary of Like Never Before and The Ship. Several reviewers said the songs show me exposed and vulnerable. And you know what? They're probably right. See for yourself. The songs can be streamed on Spotify and all the other streaming services. And you can check out all of my music at the Project Grand Slam website. The links are all in the show notes. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and to my music, 
and keep on rocking. All right, we're going to lose time here if I don't get into this Songfest portion. And you've given me a handful of your you know, good works, great works. We're playing right now the first one. This is Outlier. This is a snarky puppy cut. And this is a very heavy kind of record, okay? And you got that sax solo right in the middle of this. Tell me a little bit about what this is all about and and your experience with this record. So like I mentioned, this was my first time working with the band. And to layer on top of that extra complexities, their regular drummer, who'd been their drummer for all the years up until then, had a passport issue and at the last minute was not able to make it to Europe to do the recording. And so Mike, the band leader, had to scramble and he had a couple other wonderful drummers in the wings that he could ask and and only one of them was kind of available and his name is Larnell Lewis and he and Mike had to had to do had to pull some strings to get Larnell out of what he was already involved in and then Larnell came over to you know to jump on this at the last moment so I had never met Larnell and I mentioned this because you you'll hear in the track like there's a pretty involved dialogue between myself and the drummer Larnell and Mike had told me, oh, you're going to love this guy. He's a really interactive drummer, great player. And of course, he was absolutely right. Larnell is a is a beast. And so this was just, yeah, the beginning of the of the session. It was probably in the, you know, within the first day of it, because we recorded all these songs over the course of like four or five days. And we would record them once or twice each night in front of a different audience. And the idea was that they never cut together pieces from different takes. They were only going to take a unified take whatever yeah. happened, Mike would find the one that had, you know, the best the energy best one. Right. Exactly. And so on this particular track, the one that made the album, I started to solo and things were going great. And I was really getting in there uh, with sparring with Larnell in a very, in a great dialogue, but it was also really warm in the studio. There's a lot of people in there. It was hot and I got pretty excited. And at one point my, my headphones just fell off. My, I was sweating <laughs> and the headphones literally just tanked. And I, I paused for a second. I remember it like moving really slowly, like, oh crap, what do I do? And I thought, okay, I just, I have to keep going, but I couldn't hear anything other than what was going on in the room. And so I paused momentarily. And then I just, I just kept going as best I could. And one of the trumpet players, um, Mike Maher, who was standing next to me, he just casually kind of leaned down and picked my headphones up and put them back on my head while I'm soloing. So when I when it was over, I was so embarrassed. I just felt like I'd let everybody down. And I told both Mike and the video director, I was like, whatever you do, please don't, obviously don't use that take. And the videographer said, I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that's the take we use. And we had this <laughs> friendly, you know, uh, argument about it. I was like, no way. And he said, he said, you don't understand. That's YouTube gold. And he was right. I did not understand. All I was thinking about was the audio. And sure enough, months later, the record's coming out. They sent me the track just as audio, and I heard it, and I heard that it was, in fact, this one, and I my heart sank. Because when you listen to it, 
it's like I'm building up to a climactic moment in the solo and then I just disappear. Like I go off to, you know, get coffee or something. It was so upsetting to me until I finally saw the video and I was like, okay, you know, I get it. And during that moment where my headphones fall off, you can hear it even if you're not looking at it because you'll hear me just sort of stop. And then there's a very epic drum fill. And that's what happened. Well, you know, kind of story that you're talking about. First of all, you know, when you're soloing like that, you're in your own world in a sense. Yeah. And you don't see the bigger picture of what's happening. And that's really what you were being told here, that the bigger picture was working. The other thing that I come away with from this is that great interaction that takes place in improvisational music between instruments. And the fact that you and the drummer were so simpatico at that moment in that song, that probably made the whole thing work for you. Am I right? Yes, definitely. You can, you can, there's specific moments. There's Larnell plays something. He goes, baba dut dut on the drums. And then I play like, da dut dut. And then he plays something back and you can hear that we're just, we're literally talking to each other. And it was, it was a great moment overall. I just uh, had to get over my embarrassment. <laughs> I love that. All right. Well, you don't have to be embarrassed. It worked out. It was a great album too. All right, let's go to the next one. This is Can't Wait for Perfect. This is a totally different kind of thing. This is slower. This is kind of a sexy thing. Tell us about this one. So this was later. The song is an older song. It actually was the title track from my very first album, which I recorded with a great group of jazz musicians in New York. And, and that actually is the name of my first album, Can't Wait for Perfect. The track that I sent you is from a this semi-impromptu band I put together and ended up calling Guitar Band. And it was I was taking a page out of Snarky's book. I had a night at a great jazz club in LA called the blue whale. And I knew and it was in January around this NAM convention and a bunch of people were going to be in town. And I thought, well, let's just, let me put together kind of a, a little super group um, while everybody's here. And so I was able to get near Felder on guitar and Mark Letiri from snarky on guitar and, and Sput Robert Sput Seawright, who is the guitar, excuse me, the drummer from snarky that was not able to make the recording that I was just speaking of. And Kave Rastagar, fantastic session bassist, and was from a band called Knee Body. And so we had this night at the club, and we were not going to have time to rehearse. And we actually barely had time to sound check. And I decided to film it just to see if like, any, we got anything good for YouTube. It wasn't initially planned to be a record. And because of all of those things I just mentioned, and we had no time, I, I chose some very simple songs that I thought we could get through without anything more than just a quick talk down. And we ended up setting up in a in a circle so that we could all see each other because we needed to. We needed to have that sort of eye contact to have any hope of getting through this. So <laughs> again, this is Snarky's fault um, that I got this idea. And, you know, we had the audience all around us and it was great, a great vibe. And not only did I borrow that idea from Snarky, I think I got the idea for playing with two guitars because of my time in John's band. I so enjoyed the feeling and the texture of when I got to play and I got to solo in John's band because there were three guitar players and it was 
so wildly different than playing, for instance, in a jazz quartet with a piano to have this lush three, you know, you've got three, two electric guitars, maybe an acoustic guitar. I just love that sound. And so it was a little bit of both of those things combined. And something I've always been a fan of and continue to be is like there, there's a magic that can come out of this spontaneity, especially when you feel like you're really on the tightrope. And, and that shows up in this song, I think, uh, in this whole, in the whole evening's performance, meaning we were constantly like, is this going to work? Is, you know, how am I, how are we going to communicate endings and who's soloing and whatever? And it didn't matter. It just, it just took care of itself. And Mark Letiri takes a exquisite guitar solo on this. Um, it just goes to some really fun places. I think that I agree completely with, with what you're saying. When you have great musicians and everybody thinks you have to be fully rehearsed. And of course, it's always great when you can fully rehearse. But if they're good enough musicians, you can actually just get up there and kind of do it on the spot. Mm -hmm. Okay. Miles used to do that in his great quintets. He would walk and he just kind of, you know, tell people, all right, let's start with this. And they just do it. So kudos to you that it worked out this way. All right. We're going to do one more here. This is called Feedback. And this is you with uh, John Mayer. This is a very funky kind of track. us about this one this was for an album i did uh when i was still in new york and it was on the heels of some of the, my time working in john's band and i had this song that i'd been playing and was i knew i was going to record and i asked john if he'd be willing to play on it and i actually asked him if he, i said hey i just want you to play a guitar what i want to do is capture some of what we meaning john and i did in his band live some of the interplay and honestly, I was interested in that more than I was interested in saying, you know, John Mayer is on the track. So I I said, let's do it the way that the Marsalis brothers used to do stuff. They used to sometimes appear on people's records under pseudonyms. And I said, you know, if you'd be down, if you want to play on it, I don't make up a name. I don't care. I just want you to play guitar on it. And he was very generous and cool about it. And he was like, no, I want to play on it. And absolutely. I want to I'll play on it under my own name. And so we went in the studio and I had a plan. I had the song was ready. John had the song. We were on a lunch break and John showed up. And while the rest of the band was in uh, the studio in, in Manhattan, we were just all eating. He started to play the riff that ended up being on the song. The, the way that he played it was totally different than what we thought it was going to be. And it was so, it was just so grooving that like everybody kind of put their lunch down and just like went in and we just started playing it. Um, and it just, it just kind of unfolded like that. Isn't that fun when that happens? You just kind of get the rhythm and you get the beat and it just happens. Yep. That's fantastic. All right. We have been speaking here with Bob Reynolds, the great Bob Reynolds, saxophonist with Snarky Puppy and John Mayer and so many others. Bob, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Robert. And now we're going to listen to that song that started off this episode. It's my reimagined version of the Kinks. You really got me. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Got me now, got me so I can sleep at night.